tonight, topically, we're going to focus on the story of David, Saul, Saul's robe, and the cave where the wild goats were, okay? So the rock of wild goats, and it's, it's another cave. It's not the cave of Abdullah where he got his mighty men. It's another cave. So we're in that background where David is fleeing for his life from King Saul. We left off with the previous chapter where he, he was surrounded by Saul, and God sent a messenger to Saul that the Philistines were attacking, so Saul had to retreat from catching David. And then David and his men named the place by which they escaped the rock of escape. And as they went forth from there, their, their fugitives, having done no wrong, there are at least 600 men, wives and kids. There are at least a crew of probably like 1,000 people just rolling around through the Judean wilderness, through Israel, fleeing from King Saul. And everybody knows that this is what's going on in the land. At the same time, the Philistines are in the land, occupying certain cities. So there's like war from the outside oppressors, and there's civil unrest because of the division between... Saul attacking David, but not David necessarily attacking Saul. And that's our background. So chapter 24, verse 1, realizing now that Saul has been rejected by God. He has the spirit of distress. He's losing it, and David has the Holy Spirit upon him, and he's being refined by the Lord to be a great king through the agitation and the persecutions and the tribulations brought on him by his father-in-law, the current King Saul. So verse 1 reads this. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men with all Israel, went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds of the road, by the road, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. He, needs. he went to go to the bathroom. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as seems uh, good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he's the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also rose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand at the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you and said, I will not, I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see, the corner of your robe is in my hand, for that I did not cut off the corner of your robe, for that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, no one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. For whom has the king of Israel come out against? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord judge 
be judged between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. This was David's response to this event and yet the latest turn of events where David is fleeing from Saul and Saul is trying to kill him. In the context, we see that Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Saul took the very best of his men in his army to pursue David. He should be pursuing the real enemies, the Philistines, but he's pursuing David because he's out of his mind and God's allowed it. So with superior numbers of probably five to one, he's coming against David's men and his army, which at that time, David's mighty men are still the men that were in debt, in distress, and discontent. They're not the mighty men yet. And they're fleeing for their lives. They had to be convinced a second time after the Lord showed David in a previous chapter to attack the Philistines, to deliver the one village, and the men wouldn't go with them. And then he sought the Lord again. God affirmed to him again that they're supposed to go fight this battle. Then the men went with them. So as much as this is a story of David and Saul and their relationship, it's also a story of David and his men, the mighty men who would be entrusted with being heroes in the Bible, leading two generations of Israel into the future, up until the time of King Solomon, and they would shape the great dynasty, the Davidic dynasty that began with David, the man after God's own heart. We can never do it alone, and David has this great responsibility to be used to raise up men. And we talked about this with David's mighty men last week, where Jesus had the 12 apostles. Uh, Pastor Chuck had all the, the heroes of the Calvary Chapel movement, Greg Laurie, Raul Reed, Skip Heising, and these guys. And this is and, and worship generations had its own mighty men and women as well, right? Like, this is, this is how it works in, in, for the people of faith and for the church even to this day. But these mighty men, they're, they're growing and they're learning. And they're learning from their leader, David, just as the apostles would learn from Jesus how he handled people. Again, when Jesus was rejected in the one village of Samaria... John and James said, should we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus goes, no, you, you just don't understand what spirit you are of. And this is how it works. So it's not just God preparing David to be the great king and refining him through the actions of Saul, his father-in-law, the current king, but also how David's actions are going to affect the hundreds of men who follow him with their wives and children who came to him in debt, in distress, in debt, and discontent. It's not just David and Saul. There's so much more. This is a real test of David's faith because David was a songwriter and he wrote, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. The first book of Psalms are all David's psalms, so 41 songs about trust in the Lord, look to the Lord. His son Solomon would later say, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all of your ways and he'll direct your path. These are things that he would have learned from his father, David. And David has sang songs, sung songs about trusting the Lord and about his enemies and the Lord delivering him like a shepherd delivers the sheep. But as often as the case, when you teach it, you need to live it. And any teacher knows that. School teacher, pastor, pastor's wife, we, we all know. As a parent, you model what your worldview is in your home and the culture of your home. And this is the case for David. So 3,000 choice men come out against him. Saul's out of his mind, and he's pursuing him. They're at the place with the, the goats. And of all the ironies, they're hiding in a cave, and it's the very place that Saul, the king, goes to relieve himself to use the restroom. And then this event happens where 
this is the event, and David's men have a conclusion what it means. So we, we know, okay, let's go knowledge, wisdom, understanding, right? Because these are the big three in the book of Proverbs. Knowledge is the facts. Or we say with finances or something like that. It's just the metrics. These are the facts. You make this much money, spend this much money, that's a balanced budget in your home. Income expenditures, right? That's metrics. It's math. It doesn't change. So facts, knowledge is the facts. So you, 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 when you know, once you know, like, hey, the boss is going to let five people go, and there's, you know, ten people here, so there's a 50% chance that I'm going to get let go. Like, you just know, like, knowledge is information that is factual information. Understanding is what it means. So knowledge is like, hey, Saul, my enemy, is in this cave going to the bathroom right now. Understanding is that, hey, I could get him right now. I understand that this is an opportunity to get him. Right now, there's an option to end this run around in circles for our life throughout Israel in the Judean wilderness, I understand that I could take his life right now. But wisdom is, am I called to take his life? That's the decision. Wisdom is the decision. Of course, the Bible tells us if we lack wisdom, let us ask God and he'll give us wisdom to know. He promises to give us the understanding, the wisdom to make the right decision in any given situation when we allow him to be Lord of that situation. Should I keep this job? Should I look for a new job? Should we sell our house? Should we keep our house? Should we move out of state? Should we do this? Should we invest our money this way? Should we invest our money that way? Wisdom is what is the right decision? How am I going to act or react? And this is a reaction situation because here in this cave, they're hiding to preserve their lives. This is the fact. Saul, who's trying to kill us, just came in this cave. And we understand that we can end this right here, right now, with the sword, of Goli- the sword of Goliath. But is that the right decision? What's interesting about this story is David gets a little bit of vindication here. You know, when people hurt you really bad and they've committed great evil to you, maybe they've sued you, maybe they've taken your money. And it's one thing if you want to give people money, it's another they take it. Right? You know, there's a big difference. And... David has opportunity here. He's the victim of injustice. And right now, he can do something about it against his pursuer, his attacker. David is not Saul's enemy. David, Saul is not David's enemy. David does not look at King Saul, his father-in-law, as his enemy. But yet Saul looks at David in madness as being his enemy. And even the context of what we read tonight reveals that. But above all else, this is a test. This is a test for David as to what kind of a man he really is going to be. Because we're told he's a man after God's own heart. So we think, are are you a woman after God's own heart? Like when God delivers your adversary to you in the cave and you have the sword and you can cut their robe, are you going to cut her robe, his robe, or whatever? It's a test. And this test, we've been talking about how crucial every test of David is in the wilderness. This might, you know, it's almost like a video game with layers that get more difficult. Because this test is even more profound than the previous test we've seen. Because this is the test that separates David from your everyday king. Or your group of thugs of 600 in the wilderness. The Bible is filled with men who lead men that are raiders and do things to attack and avenge and do stuff like that. But rare and lofty are the heights of very special people, men and women, 
whose faith in God elevate them above vindication and petty repayments for things done wrong, or even grand repayments for things gone wrong. David's already dodged the spear of Saul on a number of occasions. Saul has already given his wife, Saul's daughter was David's wife. She's already been given in marriage to another man. I mean, these are, these are serious things. These are very serious things that have affected David. And this is the man. This is the man that's ruining his life. And it's a test. It's a test to see how he'll do. Will he, will he avenge himself fully? Well, he got a sample. You know, like when, I don't know if they do this at Costco anymore, but you know the Costco sampler, right? Yeah, yeah, try this. And, you know, it's always the new stuff. So try this, like, hmm, a little sampler. And you decide, are we going to buy the whole product? Because they have the product right there. So you sample it, get the product. You sound like, oh, I don't like that at all. And you don't get it. Well, this is a sampler of vindication and vengeance. It's a little sampler. little piece of that robe. It's your Costco sample of what vindication and revenge feels like when you, when you avenge yourself. Yeah. I showed him. I showed her. I got a piece of your robe, girl. How's that feel? Wow. You know, I, I got a piece of your robe right here. Yeah. Who's, who's the boss now? Who holds the high ground now? You're all high and mighty out there with your 3,000 men in this cave, in this porta potty I own you, and I got a piece of your robe. And in this cave, I decide who lives and who walks and who doesn't. Just a little sample, a little Costco sample. And the Lord's like, so, David, how's it feel to have a taste of vindicating yourself? How's it feel, David, to avenge yourself? How's that feel to take vengeance? How's it feel to uncover the nakedness of your adversary? your father-in-law, the anointed of the Lord. How's that feel to do that to your boss, to do that to your in-laws? How's that feel? Well, it obviously didn't feel very good, did it? It's all a test. It's like, there it is, and he took the little Costco sample, and he didn't like the way he tasted it, and he threw it away. And he's like, this is not what I eat, this is not what I do, this is not who I am. And in this moment, when he did not act upon this sample of vindication and revenge, we see yet again David's greatness and why he is the greatest of all kings that have ever lived in the human race. Because kings avenge themselves. It's what they do. You study European monarchs or Asian monarchs. This is what they do. But David truly trusted in the Lord. He could have changed. The whole storyline would have changed right here. You know, it's funny too. Peculiar funny, when you read Kings and Chronicles about all the other kings of Judah and all the other kings of Israel, isn't this what they do? How many treasons are there and conspiracies with the 40 other kings that come after David's timeline that cover the next 350 years? There are about 40 kings that cover about 350 years, and there's all kinds of conspiracies and conniving and stabbing people in the back when they're asleep and stuff like that and, and this and that. But, you know, Jesus said, he who takes up the sword will perish by the sword, especially the sword of injustice. In that sense, what a profound test this was for David. It was his opportunity to avenge himself, even as God will give you and me opportunities to avenge ourselves. And it's very important when those opportunities arise 
that we pass the test of faith, that we can say, the Lord judge between you and me. And if the Lord doesn't avenge me, why would I ever avenge myself? Let God be true and every man a liar. And let God reign over the affairs of the universe. And if the vindication is going to come, let it come from the Lord. Hey, we'll do our best to vindicate ourselves if we need to in a court of law or before an inquiry or court-martial or anything that we might have. Let's stick to the truth. But we all know now, from the human experience, injustices are just part of the human experience. And just because an injustice happened to you doesn't mean you're ever going to get justice on it on this side of time, space, and matter. But we know for sure no one gets away with anything in the next dimension. Everything's made just. Every crooked path is made straight. Every mountain's brought low. Every valley's filled before the throne of God. So as we think about this, this test for vindication, this test to get uh, avenged and justified, there's a few things that we see in the context of this application. Because God will give, we will have enemies, and people will commit injustices against us. They will do, they will take from us, and it'll never be enough, even when we give them almost all of our stuff. It's never enough for takers. And your adversary may be in your life till, the, till your last breath. They may leave your life at some point in time. They may step into eternity. They may have great hardships come upon them. But you can never let their, their world become your world. For the wicked, as the ancients said, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, and David was determined not to have the wickedness proceed from him. Not in this situation. For he eventually saw it as being wicked to take avenge himself. But there is opportunity for revenge, and that's what I want to talk about first of all. There is opportunity to execute. God will give you, as you're going to the Lord, God will give you opportunity to execute those who've caused you injustice. He will give you that opportunity. It will arise. Just to see what you'll do. Will you cut the robe and think, I don't want to do that? Will you take Saul's head off? Will you show mercy? Will you pass the test? Is God giving you an opportunity to get even with your enemies, entrusting to you the, the justice of the universe, or entrusting to you a chance to have faith to trust him with justice of the universe? I've told this story, but not for a while. There at Big Calvary in the early 2000s, uh, a, music, a musician came to me who had helped write a great song, had the riffs, the chords, and, and he had the proof of it. But someone else ran with the song. That song became number one. And they did really well with it. And this person was very upset about that. They, in their mind, in their worldview, it was a great injustice. They worked on this song with this person. The other person took the song, made all the money, and they didn't get anything from it, not even credit, let alone royalties. And they just, they wanted to make the label bow the knee in a court of law and confess that this guy really it was his song, not that guy's song. And he didn't even really want the money. He's like, no, I just want the credit. I want people to know that's my song. I said, well, all right. This is in Sanctuary at Big Calvary on a weekday, right outside the door there from the office. I said, hey, let's think about this. Okay, this is really good news because you have great equity in heaven right now. You have a number one song that's a Christian song, and you wrote it, and no one knows it. You haven't gotten credit for it, and you haven't gotten money for it. Do you realize how much equity that is on the day of the Lord? What? Like, no, listen. Do you realize no one's going to applaud you or give you praise of men for that song 
the rifts in what you did. Do you understand right now that you have an eternity? When you're on your deathbed and you realize, oh, no, I'm going to eternity, you are going to equity on the other side of the universe in the next dimension where you have a number one song for Jesus that you wrote it, composed it, uh, did all the this and that in the chords, and no one knows you did it, and no one gave you praise, and you take one penny for it. That's real wealth. That's yours in eternity. You know, I never thought of it like that. I'm like, well, you should. You should think of it that way. Years later, Elizabeth Elliot, in one of her books on loneliness, because you know her, her first husband was killed by the Aka Indians as a missionary, and then her second husband died a very painful death of terminal illness, and then she died of Alzheimer's. Um, I was just thinking about this, by the way. I was thinking about women that have influenced my life. Is Of course, my wife. Then, of course, my mom, Joe, Joe, uh, my Catholic mom. But I thought, well, you know, after that, I have to say Elizabeth Elliot's had the greatest influence on my life because I have a bunch of her books, and they make the cut. Every time I cut my library down, her books make the cut every time. They're great books. Well, and by the way, Susan Branch. Um, but in one of her books, In Loneliness, she talked about that you can make loneliness an offering to the Lord. So all the loneliness that you feel, you can make that an offering to the Lord. And somehow in that, she said, I learned a long time ago to make every injustice an offering to the Lord. So if someone didn't pay me rent for six months in my rental property, I made that an offering to the Lord. If someone caused my car accident this way, and when they cashed out my car, I came up 5000 short from what it was worth to me, I gave that to the Lord. You see... There are opportunities to take vengeance. And what I told this young fellow back at Calvary Costa Mesa over 20 years ago, when those songs were current songs, I said, you have two choices today. You can leave here in bitterness and be determined to take that label and those people to court and prove it's your song, get your money, and have them say I'm sorry and put you on a CD that no one will even care about because in 20 years no one will buy CDs. Or... You can give it to the Lord right here in the sanctuary like so many people have done for 30 years and walk out free and get on with your life. Because do you want to spend the next couple years with a lawyer taking on their lawyers over who wrote the chords and who who did the riffs? Or do you just want to be free and just say, that's a good thing on the day of Christ Jesus? See, it was an opportunity. He's telling me, I've got the robe. I've got this label's robe. I got this guy's robe. And I can show you, I got their robe right now. And I got the knife of, I got the sword of Goliath right here. I was like, hey, hey before you cut it, in the, the cave of Porta Potty, before you cut that robe, I know. Just, it is what it is. I'm, this is what the Bible says. Before you cut that robe, let's think about how much better it is to not cut that robe and what it means for you when you stand before the Lord. And, he actually called me back. I never saw him again, but he called me back months later, and he said, thank you so much. He goes, I let it go that day, and I just moved on with everything God has for me in life. Now, isn't that how you want to do it? Some people, they're waiting until God brings them to your cave. You wake up with the sword of Goliath, the one thing you feel you got control of in your life, and you're just like, Lord, bring them here. Bring her here. Bring that robe here. I'm going to hack and like an info commercial. You know, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to show you what, what cutting looks like. Some people are like that. They wake up, and all they can think about is how I'm going to get even with this person. And they're consumed with their vindication, justifying themselves, and proving that they were right. Even recently, I said to someone 
in a similar conversation, I said, I said to him, I go, hey, if this is your last year on planet Earth, is this how you want to spend it? Because you can settle with this person right now. They're saying they'll settle for this, and you say you have that, but you don't want to give that unless they say they're sorry. Hey, take it from a 60-year-old. If you're waiting for someone to say sorry, <laughs> you, could be, you may never hear it. Some people will say they're sorry, but a lot of people won't. And some people say they are, but they're not. If you're waiting to have peace in your heart because someone tells you they're sorry, you might, <laughs> good luck with that. You need peace in your heart because you let it go and you forgave them. And you're looking at that robe and you got Goliath's sword and you're like, there are opportunities. And it's important you recognize the opportunity so you know how to respond properly in Jesus' name to his glory. The Bible tells us to test all things. See, because we say, is, when Saul was delivered to David, is it for David to get vengeance or is it a test? See, in this story, the thing that doesn't matter is Saul. Let's think about this. Saul doesn't matter. The person who, who, who didn't pay the rent, the person who did the car wreck, the person who fired you unjustly, they don't matter in your universe because God is preparing you for what he wants to do through you in time, space, and matter for his kingdom in eternity. Saul's not even, Saul, it doesn't even matter. Saul's not the issue. The issue is you and me and our heart. Because here's the thing. When Saul is delivered to you and you take the sword of Goliath and you put it through him, you become Saul. That's the problem. What separates David from Saul? You let him walk away in Jesus' name. What separates a disciple of Jesus Christ from the world? Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, to love and forgive your enemies. When they take, tell you, force you to walk a mile, you walk two miles. The teachings of Jesus are so revolutionary for dealing with your adversaries and your enemies. He said, when someone's suing you, before you get to court, resolve it. Figure it out. Find a way. Some things end up in court because that's just the way they go. But it's much, it costs less money if you can figure it out. And then when you go to court at Superior Court in Santa Ana, there's a sign saying, hey, before you file the charges and all this, you can get an arbitrator. It'll cost you less, but at least get an arbitrator and get an arbitration and, and agree on that. It'll save you less money in legal fees. But if you really want to go to court and do this, you can. It's America. Jesus said, who's, really when Jesus said to resolve that with the person, like, who's got time to do that? If you're young, do you want to spend three years of your life in your 20s when you're in the flower of your youth and the strength of your youth? Do you want to spend three years going to court over and over and over again? And then the lawyer fees tend to, if you're a lawyer, no offense, the, the fees just keep going up. Up, 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 up. That's why they're lawyers. They know more than you. And you pay them for it. So if you got a lawyer, make sure at least they're a good one. You don't have to vindicate yourself. Like Pastor Chuck used to teach so often at Calvary Costa Mesa, you can avenge yourself, but the Lord can do a much better job. So think through what you're doing. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Consider well, test all things. Sift through the opinions. And listen, in this story, isn't it amazing? David's buddy's like, this is it. His mighty men are yet, no, not yet the mighty men yet. This is the council of 400 men. Kill him now. Or this is it. Just finish it. 
But that little sample from Costco, that little robe sample just did not feel good. In fact, we're told there in verse uh, 4 and 5 that it says, Now it happened after David's heart, after he did this, his heart troubled him. That's like that conviction of the Spirit or our own conscience saying, Was that worth it? Like his own conscience. The Bible tells us that our conscience will condemn us. And our heart will convict us. The Holy Spirit will certainly convict the heart of a believer. So whether it's his own conscience, having a heart for God, or the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God was upon him, convicting him, he knew enough not to take another step in this direction. The little sample of the robe was enough to tell him, this doesn't feel good. I don't want to drink from this well. I don't want to touch these things. This is not for me. And But his... His whole crew, his his team, his entire group of employees, 400 employees are like 600 employees. Kill him now. He's like, no. And this is where we see his great leadership. Because in this opportunity, by doing the right thing and listening to his conscience and heeding the convictions of his heart and the Lord himself, I'm sure, he sifted through their opinions. And he did not, he was the only one in that cave at that time holding the piece of Saul's robe with his conscience and his heart telling him this is the wrong thing to do. But his entire group, his support crew, all had a different opinion, an assessment of the circumstances of what he should be doing. But this is what makes him great. He had the mind of the Lord, the heart for the Lord, and it says he restrained them. And this is, again, this is what separates him from Saul and makes him so great, that he doesn't avenge himself. And when we do not avenge ourselves and we show the world that we trust in the Lord to set the record straight and make injustices just, whether we're Rosa Parks or whatever, you know, and the things that go on in the human experience, they're injustice. Look at Hank Aaron, what he went through going for the home run record that was Babe Ruth. And you, you look at the kind of stuff like that. But you don't have to be black to have those injustices. You can be white and have those injustices. You ever go to 7-Eleven on the west side of Oahu? See how they treat howlies? I know what that's like. You give injustice because you're Asian. You give injustice because you're a woman. Because you're a handsome man. You give injustice for anything. Because you're rich or because you're poor. We're all going to have injustices. So pass the test. Throw the sample away. Do not buy that product. And tell everyone you're shopping with, this is not for us. No. This is not for us. He restrained them. And when you let, if you have a legacy in life, show your wife, show your husband, show your children, your grandchildren, your employees, show them that you're a woman and a man of a higher character, that you let the Lord avenge you. Because you can take them to Awanas and you can take them to youth group, whatever, this church or whatever, but let me tell you, when they, your children grow up and they have to decide if they're going to avenge themselves or let it go and trust the Lord, it's not going to be Awanas or the youth group they went to. It's going to be what they saw in your house when they were growing up. That's what it's going to be. That's what it's going to be. The opportunities are there. His heart was troubled. We see that in verses 6 and 7. His conscience, the Spirit's conviction, and again, like I said, just because you can doesn't mean you should. To kill Saul is to become Saul. And that's not what God had for him. Vengeance and vindication at the expense of character 
peace, love, and joy is a very costly equity. Because the greatest equities in the human experience, the greatest values in faith in Jesus are free. Peace, love, joy, patience, humility, all the beautiful things that God wants. To the pure, all things are pure. There's so much good things God has for us. But with bitterness and a seed of bitterness and wrath and vindication and vengeance, oh, it just destroys us. Vengeance at the expense of our personal character, the peace of God, and the joy in the journey. I actually have my notes here. I just wrote the horror of it all. Your life is a horror movie if you wake up in bitterness. Anyone watching or whatever, if you wake up and you've got bitterness reigning in your heart over injustices to you to vindicate yourself, you are a, a scary movie that no one wants to watch. And it'll destroy you. It'll destroy everything that's beautiful and lovely in your life. And that's why Jesus said, you gotta let it go. We gotta look to Jesus on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And of all the things that you can accomplish or not accomplish in the human experience, if you can forgive your enemies and your oppressors and those who take advantage of you and spitefully use you, you win. I talk a lot about being great. You know, I always talk about, like, why be average if you can be great? You know, like, greatness is being the best version of you that you can be through faith in Jesus Christ. So really, if we're going to measure true greatness, what's greater than being in the last day of your life with no bitterness bitterness in your heart, having forgiven all all those who come against you with malice toward none and goodwill toward all? You step into eternity. You, woman, are ready to see Jesus face to face. You, man, are ready to see Jesus face to face. But if there is bitterness, now, I know in my own life that there are things that happen that, that will test you. And you can't always just find a settlement on the way to the judge. Joint custodies, things like that. There's just things that can happen. And forgiveness can be a process. But awareness that you're vulnerable there is part of the process. And being willing to work through it is a sign of maturity in the faith with Jesus Christ. When you can say, yeah, I do want to cut that robe. Lord, help me not want to cut that robe. All right, I gave it to the Lord on Wednesday. I'm going to bed. I have peace. You know, like, so I can walk through my front door right now, and I don't want to cut that robe. But then you go to work the next day, and you walk, you, you, you go to work, and all of a sudden, Saul comes like, and throws a spear right over your head. like, I want to cut his robe. I want to cut her robe. I want to cut Where's, my, where's the sword of Goliath? I was like, leave the sword of Goliath at home. Leave that in the back part of the cave. What I'm saying is it's, it's a process. And there's always been my objective. When I went through the church split in Virginia Beach in 1991, it was like a church split. It was really, I say this, it was a church split, but it really was a, it was a church uh, a detonation. It was just like the person had no interest in planning another church. They just wanted to destroy everything that was in our, the church that we were there. And I, 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 oh, it was, I just... I wanted to, it's such a beautiful work, and it was set back for a whole year to rebuild the damage done by like one week of evil intent phone calls. And, um, but I knew I had to forgive and go forward. And, and I realized, I, I, the, I was grateful that people that caused all these problems moved out of state. One moved out of state within a week. Another was transferred by the military within seven months. 
And uh, the other one, we let him come back, and then he did the same thing again, and then we said, you just got to go somewhere, and he went down the streets of the other Calvary Chapel, and I told the pastor, uh, I didn't tell the pastor, I told one of my pastors, that guy won't last a year there before he tries to destroy that church, and he did it in 11 months. What are you going to do? Then he went to Kentucky and did the same thing in another Calvary Chapel. What are you going to do? You're going to forgive him, is what you're going to do. And if you're the pastor, don't let him lead worship again either. <laughs> you give him two chances. But you can't let them affect you when they've left as to how you're ministering to the people that are there. And even if they've gone down the street and they're trying to undermine everything you do for the next 10 years of your life, you can't let them keep you from being who you are as a woman of God or a man of God. You've got to, you've got, you've got to stay in your lane with Jesus and give it to the Lord every single day. And you've got to let it go. And you say, like, you would think we just get on the cross once, and there you are in public display, humiliation, and you're being bad-mouthed, you're being slandered, you want to tell your side of the story, and all these things, and you're sitting on the cross, and these people are doing evil, they took this, they took that, and it's taken everything. And, and, and it's like, okay, Lord, I forgive them today. And you get off the cross and you go to bed, and you think, like, okay, tomorrow I don't have to be on the cross. I'm going to be on the road to Emmaus. I'm going to be with Jesus, like, breaking bread, and, like, hanging out with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You wake up the next day, the Lord's like, no, it's not the road to Emmaus. You're back on the cross. Boom! Like, at work. Right? At the family gathering. Just... Yeah, that's life, right? That is life. There's people that look at me that think I'm still wrong for something that happened 30 years ago or three years ago, whether it's Virginia Beach or the USA Surf Team. I can't convince them otherwise, and I certainly can't hold bitterness against them. I hope they all win. Because in the end, the opportunity was there, the troubled heart was there, but David chose the high royal road. You know, we say take the high road, which is the, the honorable way, the right thing. Like Martin Luther King would say, it's always the right time to do the right thing. And it's always, you know, the nonviolent platform of MLK is an amazing platform when you really think about it. Because what's everyone want to do in America right now? Be violent. I mean, like, everyone's on the cusp of violence. And the more I live, the more I appreciate someone who wanted good change socially with a non-violent platform. Truly non-violent. And it's always the right time to do the right thing. And for David, the right thing was to say these words to Saul. I will not stretch out my hand against you, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. In other words, I may be your enemy, but you will never be my enemy. And then he said, but my hand shall not be against you. I'm a dog or I'm a flea. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. But I will never raise my hand against you. This is the high royal road that very few people take. And this is the testimony and the evidence of true greatness in the human experience. It is so rare. It truly is greatness. But unlike greatness in sports or business or whatever it might be, music, this greatness is obtainable for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Because as we humble ourselves before the Lord, Jesus Christ will fill us with his spirit and give us the grace and the strength to do all things. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And as we think on what things are true and just and noble and praiseworthy, he will heal our heart. And, and, and we won't fear the cross on Wednesday morning 
we'll, we'll do the right thing, not because we're walking on the road to Emmaus with Jesus when it feels good. We'll do the right thing because we're on the cross and it doesn't feel good, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he's able to make his grace abound toward me in all things. And this is, this is the mark of Christian maturity. This is the mark of a woman of God, a man of God. This is true discipleship when people see your heart free from bitterness and wrath upon anyone. And they just see a beautiful woman and a beautiful man. And they watch how you respond. You don't rejoice in the defeat of your enemies. You don't rejoice in the humiliation of your enemies. You just say, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because our perspective is eternity, forward, onward, upward. Our, our perspective is the kingdom. Ours is a rainbow over the throne of God where we enter into glory in a whole other dimension that's not even to be understood on this side of the dimension, but received and believed on in faith with all eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. This is what the Lord would have us to do in these situations, to make, like Elizabeth Elliot said, with loneliness and injustices, to make them offerings to the Lord. When people steal your money, make it an offering to the Lord. When people steal your reputation, make it an offering to the Lord. When they throw you under the bus, instead of saying, go for the bronze, say, Lord, bless that person in Jesus' name. Pronounce blessings on them. And if you don't feel that way, it's understandable, but by God's grace, you might begin to feel that way. And we find in the human experience, and the older people here will testify to the younger people, the more you pray for your enemies, the more likely you'll forgive them. And as I said, in, when I was talking about Virginia and seeing these guys, I was glad the Lord took them out of state. But what I really want to think was, even if he doesn't take them out of state, and I see them at Food Lion, I need to see them at the grocery store and want to hug them. With malice toward none, I want to be at Target or Whole Foods or anywhere, and I want to just be able to hug. I was like, dude, insert the name of that person you're thinking of in your life right now. And there they are talking like, hey, how you doing? Like, I want to be able to hug people. Malice toward none. Life is too short. You know, this generation, I close with this thought, this generation loves you. Uh, they call Tom Brady the GOAT, you know, greatest of all time. If you never know GOAT, the acronym, greatest of all time. And in surfing, of course, it's Kelly Slater. So uh, anything with surfing is like, oh, the GOAT. There's the GOAT, Kelly Slater. And with Tom Brady, it's like Tom Brady in football. He's the GOAT, right? I'm going to tell you who the GOAT is in the kingdom. The one truly who takes the high road and lives this way by the grace of God, by the spirit of God, and finds true greatness because they're free from bitterness and having to avenge themselves. And maybe you've cut the road, maybe you've taken the road, maybe you've actually swung the sword, but they ducked. You're like, you know, and they ducked. Be glad you didn't hit them. And if you did hit them, tell the Lord you're sorry and grow and learn from it. We gotta give it to the Lord. There's a holy high ground that's lofty air when you love your enemies. And God help us to do so in Jesus' name.